during drought, everybody wants to talk about investing in, in the infrastructure. Well, then it gets wet and we start, we stop talking about that. Then we have devastating floods and people then now talk about the flooding infrastructure, but then we don't have a flood and then that goes away. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, production of the Center for Municipal Finance of the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. I'm Justin Marlowe, and we are proudly sponsored, as always, by the Government Finance Officers Association, Build America Mutual, Odyssey Advisors, and Muni Pro. And of course, I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk, Marylander, Rooster Logistics Specialist, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Uh, last, last time we recorded, I was doing that, that, that egg, the mystery of the disappearing egg experiment. <laughs> I'm not confident yet in the results, but I think it was a snake that was taking the eggs because we have had still not as many eggs as I would have thought, but they appear to be laying again. So, or, or still laying. I don't know. I don't know. It does look, doesn't look like they ever stopped. So, uh, so that's good news. That's good news. That's an easier problem. <laughs> that's it. It certainly rules out one of the hypotheses. So that, that's good. And uh, as we know, the uh, scientific inquiry can be a, a nonlinear and often iterative process. So Indeed. keep at it and who knows, uh, who knows what, what you might learn. So we're talking today about the costs the consequences, the opportunities in water infrastructure, which is one of those areas of infrastructure that we you know, frankly often take for granted. It's there. It's extremely expensive at times, uh, but when well provided, we, we don't often notice it, except for when there's droughts, except for when there's floods, except when there's all of the other challenges associated with, with bringing water to us. But water infrastructure certainly is one of these areas that has become one of many infrastructure areas that we were concerned with too, in many ways, the main infrastructure area that we're concerned with in many parts of the country as water scarcity becomes a concern, as a lot of the infrastructure to provide water is aging and needs to be maintained and rebuilt. Uh, There's just a lot more emphasis, I think, uh, in the last few years, and certainly in the time that I've been studying public infrastructure, a lot more interest and a lot more creative financing and a lot more innovative design and public-private partnerships and all kinds of other action in the water infrastructure area. And we're going to be talking today to Josh Weimer from the Turlock, California Irrigation District about some of the really innovative steps that they've been taking uh, with respect to evaporation, which is a, a big concern in irrigation systems and water systems generally. It's an interesting nexus of climate change, water scarcity, changing agricultural and, and other sorts of needs, all the kinds of issues that we tend to see when we talk about water infrastructure and how we finance and pay for water infrastructure. Liz, uh, these are Issues that are certainly familiar to you and, and all of your reporting on these things over the year. And of course, being a, a Californian, the idea of water infrastructure delivering water, not just to consumers, but to agriculture and to other kinds of uses is nothing new, if, uh, if not completely familiar to you. So tell us a little bit more about your experiences and some of your insights over the years on reporting on how we pay for and, uh, and ultimately try to get the best out of our water infrastructure. Yeah, so there's a lot that states do on the states and localities do on the consumer messaging end. And, you know, and I grew up during a, a period of, of a long drought in California, and we got like stuff sent home all the time with these little decals. Like, I remember there was one decal that you could put on your bathroom mirror next to the sink. And it was like this little cartoons character saying, arrest a drip, <laughs> and like handcuffs on the drip <laughs> coming from the faucet. I mean, it was that was, you know, we were when we were starting the shower before the water fully warms up, you put in the tub to collect all the water 
water and then take that out to the garden. I mean, this was just standard operating procedure that's ingrained in me still. I mean, we're on well water now. It's free. There's a lot of it. And I'm still just, I can't, I can't stand wasting water. Living in California is like that. And, and then there wasn't a drought anymore. And now that it's back and it, when I'm going out there, I mean, you see it, it's people are taking out their lawns or putting in, putting in the rocks and the, the, you know, tall grasses or whatever, putting in the fake AstroTurf sometimes, which I'm a little iffy about. There's almost this cultural, like, I don't want to say shaming, but if you have a lawn, I mean, you're going to be judged. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, it's just, yeah. So uh, water conservation is a huge, huge deal. And so we talk a lot about it on the consumer end, but for really any different, any real difference, I think for there to be made, it has to come from, from the, the state and local government side and the, the Colorado river deal which was just reached a month or so ago is really like the probably the biggest thing the colorado river basin serves seven states 40 million people 30 tribal nations it's it is a huge source and and focal point in terms of of water conservation and it's it's funny we're i don't think california now california's flooding so <laughs> it's 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 one or the other but water conservation is going to be a huge part of of maintaining um life really out out in the west and and adjusting and so we we don't talk about it enough on i think on the on the government side in terms of putting in the infrastructure that will make water conservation applicable to a mass area consumers can only do so much some people are always going to have their lawns and swimming pools and and whatever <laughs> and so there really needs to be something at the larger mass scale. And, and we talk about conservation, but also part of that, which is what interested me so much about this project that we're going to talk about, is is other ways of saving water, you know, saving it from getting dirty, saving it from evaporating. And and beyond that, it's it's leaky pipes. I mean, there are so many other ways we can go about this and it, and, and it all needs to happen. And it's an interesting opportunity too, in so many ways. We Obviously, these are challenges, but the old adage is, of course, there's also some really exciting opportunities built into this. And we see that on the conservation side. We also see it in other areas where water management and infrastructure related to water is really central. Like stormwater comes to mind in particular. Lots of places now under either EPA mandates and, and other types of restrictions to try to better maintain water quality, try to deal with effluents coming through your stormwater systems. That in many cases has meant revamping, rebuilding existing stormwater systems. We, we were talking to Eric Horvath from South Bend on, a, on an episode several months ago now about one kind of one approach to that, which is to take an existing stormwater system that you know really needs to be rebuilt, but finding ways to get the most out of the capacity that it provides. There's a completely different way to think about that, which is to say, let's try to keep water from getting into the stormwater system in the first place. And that creates, that means rain gardens and bioswales all kinds of other ways of thinking about what water management infrastructure is, particularly stormwater management infrastructure. And then with that comes opportunities to build new recreational spaces, new green spaces, beautify communities, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so these are you know, really one of the interesting things to watch has been all the ways that we think about these kinds of investments, sometimes in systems that are decades and decades old, are a real challenge, but they also, if you're willing to, sort of skip an iteration or two and go right to a much more contemporary solution, unlocks a whole bunch of opportunities, unlocks interesting finance models, unlocks interesting community engagement models, and so on, and so on, and so on. So as big as these challenges are, because everybody needs water, everybody's concerned about it, there's opportunities to try out some things that you might not be able to try out in other infrastructure spaces. Mm -hmm.
Well, we're pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Josh Weimer, who is the External Affairs Manager for the Turlock, California Irrigation District. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Public Money Pod. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, welcome, Josh. First thing I, I think we'd like to talk about is is an, an irrigation district, not not your average water district that maybe people might, might, might know about. And I know Turlock is California's oldest. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about the history behind that and what the difference is between an irrigation district and other ki- kinds of water districts? Irrigation is really the lifeblood of the Central Valley. And, you know, before irrigation districts, public irrigation districts were formed, there was this concept of how do we get water from the rivers, from those areas to productive land. And there was a lot of private entities saying, hey, we can we can create these canals, the infrastructure to change farming from a, a dry farming or wheat for the most part in the Central Valley to different types of crops by having irrigation. And the cost was so expensive that it never really got off the ground until this concept of this is for the public benefit. This is for the public good. This will not just provide farmers the ability to, to grow, but it has all the downstream economic benefits of changing, revi- revitalizing really the community uh, to flourish. And so with that, there was a specific piece of legislation introduced called the Right Act back in 1887. And uh, with that, it allowed communities to create this own special type of government, so, similar to cities, similar to counties, uh, that can lever- levy their own taxes and create this for the public benefit entity. And that's the irrigation district. And so we're the first. And uh, that was 136 years ago. And uh, our community uh, really has been transformed by bringing irrigation water to our landscape. I know Central Valley is where most, if not all, of, of California's ag in- industry is. So is that, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, it's really, you know, California agriculture is, is really um, such a large economic driver for the entire state and for and for our region, for uh, Stanislaus and Merced counties, which is about 90 miles south of Sacramento, 90 miles east of San Francisco for a perspective. Uh, ag is the central economic job creation for our area. So it's not just farmers, but it's ag producers. It's a, a variety of different uh, businesses that are dependent on agriculture. And, and we have some of the most productive land uh, really in the world. And, uh, you know, that that's led, leads to producing over 80, 85 percent of the protein nuts in the world and, you know, 40 to 50 different types of produce that's grown in our irrigation district. We talk uh, certainly a lot more about uh, conservation and and kind of the you know the supply of water moving through the infrastructure that all of you provide. In some ways, we're here today to talk a little bit more about kind of a separate but related problem of evaporation, keeping it in the system, conserving it once it's in the system, which is a a, a different thing. We talk a little bit about the challenge of evaporation and, and some of the unique costs that are associated specifically with evaporation. So TID, we are the local irrigation district. We own and operate all of our own facilities. And so we're unique that we're not part of the state or federal water projects throughout the state. And so uh, operations are something that falls directly to us. And so when we look to uh, conserve water or to be more efficient, we're constantly evaluating where you get the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, We have a 136-year-old system. Uh, We have 250 miles of canals. We own and operate reservoirs, a very large dam in California as well. And so uh, we're constantly evaluating where can you see the largest water savings. Historically, we haven't looked to try to uh, reduce evaporation unless it's at one very specific spot in our system, which is called Sherlock Lake. And during droughts, 
we can fluctuate the height of that lake to reduce the amount of evaporation that happens. And so that's really one direct aspect that we can that we have focused on in terms of evaporation. But historically, we look to conserve water through better water use efficiency, through automation of our canal system. As you can imagine, a canal system that was designed 130 years ago might not be as efficient as something if it was designed today, uh, but it's incredibly expensive to modify and to improve all of your technology. And so we've spent over $60 million in the last 20 years to programmatically go through our irrigation system and start conserving as much water as we can. Evaporation saving is, is, is not necessarily a leader, but in the project that you know, we're going to pilot, it's, it's definitely a co-benefit and it's something that uh, any water saved is definitely a water benefit. Well, well, let's get into that 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 project. Can you tell us a little bit about Project Nexus? You know, what, give us the elevator speech. <laughs> so, in addition to being a, a local irrigation district, we're also the local retail electric provider as well. And so, we provide electricity to a population of about two hundred forty thousand in in Central California. And being a water utility and an electric utility, uh, we have a lot of uh, mandates and climate goals given from the state of California to meet. And so on the electric side, the main ones are to be 60% renewable by 2030 and 100% carbon free by 2045. And so uh, those are sizable challenges and uh, means a lot of investment in new renewable energy. So with that, uh, back in 2021, UC Merced, which is University of California Merced, that's located just 20 miles south of us. They put out this paper that theorized if we covered all of California's canals and aqueducts, what would be the evaporation savings and what would be about 15 other co-benefits of covering canals with solar panels. This isn't necessarily a new concept. A lot of times people have said, well, hey, just cover, cover the canals with solar panels. You might as well. Uh, but up until this point, we had never seen like an engineered report that provided some detailed analysis. It was just this concept. And so once this came out, uh, we were interested in the concept. The evaporation savings is definitely a benefit, but there's something that even is a larger driver on the water side, and that is the amount of aquatic growth and weeds that happen in our canal system can be potentially very disruptive to the delivery of water. And so we spend over a million dollars a year to manually maintain our canal system to get weeds out of our canal system. So the concept of reducing the amount of weeds in our canal system uh, by covering the the, can, uh, the canals with solar panels is very appealing to us to, to study and to try. Obviously, there's just so, such a perfect alignment from our water side and our electric side of the house willing to at least say, yes, we're interested in this concept and yes, we're willing to pilot it. There's definitely challenges. Uh, that we are know that we're going to run into and have ran into. And, and really one of the main ones is we have a 136-year-old system. It requires a lot of maintenance and upkeep. And we need to make sure that we're designing the system to where it does not impede our ability to maintain our canal system to make sure that we're providing reliable irrigation water to our customers. Uh, we've been cleaning and maintaining our canal system really the same for decades. And so it's worth uh, kind of challenging our team to, to look at maybe some new ways to do it uh, because the potential co-benefits of this project uh, might be worth it in the long run as we need to meet these long-term goals for California. You mentioned the, all the reasons why this project works for all of you. 
how did the pilot land with you guys versus any number of other places you might have decided to try something like this? Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question. And it comes down to just our willingness to say, hey, we're interested. Because when the paper came out, there was a lot of agencies that were contacted, asked for their opinions about it. And a lot said, uh, no, we're not interested, right? Because the potential downsides are too large. Uh, but our management team, led by our general manager, Michelle Reimers, she, uh, she picked up the phone and called the lead researcher and said, hey, we're interested. And that led to a first meeting which led to about four months worth of meetings and visits to different canals. And um, throughout that process, California was in the second year of a very bad drought. And so this was top of mind. It got a lot of publicity and it led to the state of California coming in and saying, hey, we have um, budget surplus at this point. Uh, this is a concept that we're interested in because California owns obviously the the, the California Aqueduct, which is the largest water system in California, they're interested in, in this concept and they were interested in an agency uh, that could pilot it. And so they provided $20 million in that year's budget to pilot this concept. And so uh, we were selected, we were part of the partnership and uh, able to, to move this concept moving forward. And, and really from a pilot perspective, wanting to try out new things, really breaking down the bureaucracy and having one agency that is both the water agency and the electric utility provider as well, it allows us to move at a, a, a quicker pace. Uh, and so I think it really is a, a perfect fit to really try out this pilot concept. What, what sorts of things are you going to be looking at in terms of measurement and figuring out how, how this might be scalable? Yeah. And, and so that $20 million is not just to build the project. Uh, a very large portion of that is going to the UC Merced team to really build out their research. And so they're going to be uh, studying all aspects of this project from a research perspective. So the evaporation benefits, the renewable energy generation, because uh, the paper theorizes that by covering the canals, you're actually uh, cooling the ambient air temperature under the solar panel solar panels and therefore making them more efficient. And so they're going to be studying that concept. Uh, and then from a constructability standpoint, we're going to be studying all all aspects of the construction process to figure out really what is the feasible way to do this. Uh, you can span any distance of canals, right? As long as you have enough or anything, as long as you have enough support structures. But we don't want to have any support structure within our canal itself because that would impact the integrity of our canal system, therefore leading to more maintenance costs and more potential issues. With that in mind, we're actually looking at two aspects of our canals. We have 250 miles of canals, all different shapes and sizes, all for di different use. So one of the sections uh, is 20 to 20 feet, five feet wide. And this is more your canals that run right along farmers' properties where they take the water directly. Uh, this is what we call like a distribution canal, a smaller section of our canal. But then further up the system, uh, we have a, what we call the main canal, and that's 110 feet wide. So it's very wide. It's, it's really similar to, to the state of California's aqueduct system. And we're going to be spanning that. And so as you can imagine, the technology to span the narrow is very different from the wide. We're, we're designing a system uh, to span that. And so the paper that UC Merced came up with was a concept of using suspension cables rather than steel. So a couple of benefits of that is uh, reducing the amount of steel reduces the amount of weight and in theory should reduce the cost. And so that's something that we're, we're, we're studying there. 
we've ran into some engineering uh, delays because it is spanning such a large width. It, it is proving to be a little difficult, but we should be tomorrow, August 1st, receiving all the contractor bids for the project. So we're really getting close to actually figuring out, we, we have the engineering designs, now the contractors are responding to us. So we should know in the coming month how much we're gonna be able to build and that construction timeline. So we're getting really close to being able to, to break ground in November. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like an interesting combination of uh, some old school infrastructure and some new school infrastructure all kind of coming together at, at the same time. You mentioned earlier the, the emphasis on scalability. Fast forward a bit, if this works or certainly pieces of, of what you'll be installing work, you know, what are the broader implications of that, uh, certainly statewide, but also just in general for thinking about this problem of the challenge of evaporation and some of the, the cost considerations, especially around dealing with evaporation? The potential of this project is why this Project Nexus pilot is so interesting to so many different agencies, right? Because it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like, well, we have all of these canals. We have this previously disturbed land. Uh, we should be kind of from a land use perspective. How can we already utilize the land that's disturbed from an environmental perspective? Uh, and when there's co-benefits attached, what should we be doing there? Which is kind of the lens that we're looking at. So from the evaporation potential, uh, the UC Merced paper said that if you cover all of California's canals and aqueducts, which frankly is probably not going to happen because that's probably not the best use of the space and every canal is going to have different construction. But they theorize if you covered all that, that would be a 63 billion gallons of water saved every year. Right. And so that, that, that's a sizable amount of, of water. Uh, and then the, after the paper, they did some, some calculations and looked at the amount of renewable energy that could be generated. And uh, it was sizable. And so from all of the above perspective, as from how California is going to meet our water goals and our energy goals, uh, this could be a tool in the toolbox. From our perspective, to meet 100% carbon free, this concept is not going to get us there but it could potentially allow us to layer in, in uh, very smart uh, sections of our canal system uh, that are at, at, at certain components, uh, certain spots in our electric infrastructure where it can, uh, we have the feeder capacity to take all this new generation resource and it could potentially defer some upgrades to the energy system because of uh, you know, the, the technology going in place there. And so we're looking at that from a local scalability of how we can layer this in potentially. You know, when we go out for renewable energy RFPs, uh, we, we're technology agnostic, right? We say we want a certain amount of megawatt hours. Let's, let's see what people say. A lot of times they come with solar farms or wind farms outside of our service territory. Um, and so this might allow for some of that technology inside our service territory, which has a huge benefit. Uh, we're going to increase the load in California dramatically over the next 15 years as everybody is electrifying cars and homes. Our need for energy is only going to go up. Our grid is already stressed as the last three summers and heat waves have shown. And so we need to add more transmission into our system, uh, but we're also gonna need to add more generation spread throughout the state. And so if you just develop more and more solar farms in the desert, uh, you're gonna have to move all of that power from the generation point to the end user. Like, I, I think that that's the, the interesting conversation to have here is, uh, if we need to build all of that new renewable energy, some estimates say that that's 4 million acres of solar throughout California to do that. 
that's a huge footprint, but also not all of California lives next to those solar panels. So we need to be able to move that power. And so the idea, and I think that this happens a lot in terms of renewable energy or really anything is the developers of one technology kind of view that as it's the single solution for everything, whether that's utility scale, whether that's rooftop solar, whether that's offshore wind, in all actuality, and, and just being honest about the conversation, it's going to take everything. And so that's how we kind of look at all the technology of saying, this might be a tool in the toolbox. We're not going to cover all 250 miles of canals, but we're going to have a very detailed scalability report from UC Merced that's going to look at all of our canal system and say, hey, here's some aspects, some areas of your canals that you should maybe consider uh, covering. And so that's definitely something that we're looking at. But from the, the, the potential benefits, it's not just for California, right? This is every society, every country in the world moves water from a point to the end user. We've had conversations with people from New Zealand to Romania to Moldova to uh, Germany. Everybody is interested in this concept because it seems like a no-brainer. Okay, hey, we have these open canals. Why don't we look at doing it? And so they're very interested to see our results. Uh, the water agencies are very interested to know what issues we run into so that they can avoid those in the future. And so we're, we're open to be that test bed. Uh, it should be generating power by uh, the end of Q2 in 2024. And then about a year, two years after, we'll get all of the technical data from UC Merced. They'll be publishing papers and really talking about all those details. And so uh, this is a public project. And so all the information is going to be public and people are going to be able to take that information, uh, look at it and evaluate for themselves. Is this something that makes sense based off of what they're trying to solve for? Obviously, having the synergies between the irrigation district as a water provider, but also as an electric utility makes us an especially good fit for all of you. Is that going to be the case for every irrigation district or irrigation district maybe that aren't in the utility business in quite the same way? Is there as much as, is there as, is there as much for them in this type of a model as there is for all of you? Yeah, I think that that's, it, it's a great question. And it's um, kind of gets back to the conversation about like, what does success look like? And success is going to look differently depending on what your use case is. And so in California, there's only four irrigation districts that also provide retail electricity. And uh, so that's unique, right? And so that makes us um, this type of concept uh, kind of a no brainer, uh, frankly. But depending on what you're trying to do, a water agency could have a local load source. So maybe pumps that they want to offset that power. And so maybe the solar power can directly offset a load, uh, which could be beneficial for them. Uh, maybe they can get into the PPA uh, game or a land rental process, right? If, if, if you're just, Hey, I have, you know, five miles worth of canals, uh, maybe it's just gonna, it's gonna lead to uh, a reimagination of our existing infrastructure in my mind once we show this is successful you're gonna have water agencies electric utilities solar industry that's going to kind of reimagine this and say hey how can we utilize our existing infrastructure and have it potentially have provide quite a few co-benefits uh, so every agency is going to be different some that maybe really do have a larger evaporations need maybe this is something because a lot of water agencies definitely do projects specifically to reduce evaporation. And so if that is the case, maybe they'll look at this and say the evaporation uh, reduction is uh, significant enough. The renewable energy is either going to some, be something that we can sell or that we can offset our lo own load and they'll, they'll be able to factor that in. 
I think a lot of uh, agencies are interested, uh, but they're going to be interested for different reasons. Josh, you'd mentioned uh, earlier on that the, the the conditions under which this pilot project was launched are very different than today's conditions. At the time it was launched, there was a severe drought. The state had a budget surplus. Um, fast forward to today, and it's sort of the opposite. There's more water than you've had to work with in a while, and the state has a budget deficit. Did that change at all the implementation of the plan? No, not the implementation. And it's a great question. And it's a great point because so many times just in government or just public perception is uh, if there's an immediate issue that's top of mind, but as soon as that goes away, we don't think about that. Right. And so from, and, and that's a huge issue in terms of investment in infrastructure, because during drought, everybody wants to talk about investing in, in the infrastructure but then it gets wet and we start, we stop talking about that. Then we have devastating floods and people then now talk about the flooding infrastructure, but then we don't have a flood and then that goes away. That's what we do constantly, right? We're planning for both the drought and flood constantly. Today we could be, and this was the exact issue that happened last December. We were planning for the fourth year of a drought. And then the next day we were in flood control operations as the water agency, right? And that's what you just have to plan for. And that's what we do. And that's, that's, uh, we do it very well. That is a hard thing in terms of investment. And so things lined up very well that it was a dedicated source of funding that the funding got, it got authorized and appropriated and started to get to DWR to administer that. And the fact that the state of California and the governor is very interested in this project specifically is very helpful to make sure that gets going forward. The next year after that, there was $15 million put into the budget to look at this a little bit further. And actually we were gonna do it for floating solar on one of our regulating reservoirs. Again, that land use perspective. Unfortunately, that got pulled out of the budget this year um, because although it was authorized, it wasn't appropriated and so it was pulled out. And so it, it did line up very well. And I think it lines up well in the fact that we were this local agency that was able to run quickly. Uh, once those monies were appropriate, we got pretty far along in the process, which was helpful. You know, these are the type of projects that I think, frankly, the government, we should do. We should study them. We should look to see, it does this make sense? Is it going to work out the way that the paper suggests? This is that type of initial funding that makes a lot of sense. It lined up very well. We're very thankful for it. We think it's going to be a, a great project. And we think that it's, we kind of have to change the way that we talk about the project. The last two years, it was great and easy. Everybody was talking about from the evaporation savings because of the drought. Uh, and now we're, we're not in that aspect, but there's still so many benefits that you can still talk about. There's a lot of interest and really showing that this project provides benefit every single water year type, uh, and it provides renewable energy every single day. Uh, those are huge benefits. Really, everything really did align very well to get that initial funding. I, I think obviously being in the third year of a drought or second year of the drought at that point, uh, it led to interest in this. Not the first or the last time on this podcast that we've talked about the disconnect between authorizations and appropriations, which is a whole separate discussion for another time. Anything or anything else, uh, Josh, to follow up on? No, I, I, I think that <clears throat> I think we probably touch on everything. This type of project is uh, it's exciting 
for all of the the headline reasons that it's exciting, but it's it's exciting from like a, a daily operations. How we maintain this project is going to be great for um, learning more about that and doing some uh, job training for different jobs at TID that um, maybe have historically worked in natural gas combustion areas. So that now we can you know have training on this type of technology. And so there's some good potential as we look to the future, what type of jobs are going to be happening in our district. Uh, there's some potential here. And then really, it's just great that, you know, we're the oldest irrigation district in the state. Nobody thinks that, you know, we're doing the latest technology on things, right? Because that's just not intuitive. So it, it's a great story. And it has allowed it has allowed TID to talk about all of the other projects and technologies that we're investing in because this is really just opens the door to conversations with people that frankly we haven't had before. Uh, and so it led us to talk about projects we've done with NASA to reimagine how we do snowpack monitoring in our watershed, the first watershed that ever did that over 10 years ago. And it has removed uncertainty in terms of how much snow is in our watershed. And uh, we spent the last 10 years trying to get more and more people on board with this, advocating lobbying in Sacramento, Washington, DC for this type of of information and and it, so it, it's it's opened the door. It's really talked and highlighted all of the the unique things that the district's doing. Uh, we definitely like to to pilot concepts. Uh, we like to to try things out, and so this is really the latest in the in the long uh, history of of really trying new things. Well, thanks so much, Josh Weimer from the Turlock California Irrigation District. We really appreciate you sharing lots of interesting insights with us uh, here on the Public Money Pod. Thanks for the invite. It was a fun conversation. Thanks again to Josh Weimer. That was a great conversation. And uh, and I, I certainly learned a lot more about water uh, management than, than I think I expected to. That was super educational. I wanted to bring attention to the, the article in Route 50 that prompted us to, to contact him in the first place. It, it came out uh, late May, early June, and it is by uh, Rachel Gottlieb. It's called There's a New, There's a Deal to Conserve the Colorado River. Now here comes the hard part. And she talks about the uh, deal between Arizona, California, and Nevada. Together, they're going to conserve 3 million acre feet of water through 2026. So that's basically like a million acre feet a year, only we're already halfway through 2023. <laughs> um, in exchange of this for this agreement, the, um, the Biden administration is going to pay them $1.2 billion. That 3 million acre feet of conservation it's estimated to reduce the usage by an unprecedented amount, just short of one third of the river's average annual flow, uh, Rachel writes. For years now, Nevada and Arizona have banned lawns in subdivisions. Uh, more recently, Nevada enacted size limits on swimming pools. Um, a lot of that stuff that we kind of talked about earlier, that uh, putting putting limits on on consumer use of water. But there are other ways. Um, California is also looking at something called shade balls, which are, uh, I looked them up, they are made from high density polyethylene, otherwise known as plastic. They are black, about 10 inches in diameter typically, and they are designed to reduce evaporation by 80 or 90% by providing shade from the sun, though that wasn't always their purpose. They were developed to deter birds, but that's to me one of those great stories of you, you make something for one thing and find out it works better for something else. <laughs> So, uh, and and the story goes on to describe the the project nexus and and some of these other other ways of conservation that 
that states are are looking at. Uh, trees is another one cutting down. And for California and states in the West that has the double effect of tre trees absorb a lot of water and taking them down can help conserve that water and also reduce the, the chance of, of wildfire risk. So there's a lot of different things. And what strikes me about this is there's no one there's no one solution. And even when you talk about water conservation, it's not even just like using less water at the tap. There's a whole bunch of other ways to, to do so. And and many of those ways can also conserve um, taxpayer dollars, which is like the one-two punch I think everybody everybody loves. That's that's the twofer in uh, in public finance. So it just it fascinates me that there's there's a lot a lot to do, a lot to to navigate here with between and the multi-state effort really is is a, is so necessary. It almost reminds me of the Paris climate climate accords. Like if if everyone doesn't jump on, it's it's just not going to work as well. So hey, what what are your takeaways from from reading this, Justin? Yeah, it was really interesting, and of course, always nice to be able to highlight good work from our friends at Route Fifty. It really it really um, reinforced a point that that Josh made in the conversation we had with him, which was that these really are going to be very localized solutions. That the in the infrastructure questions and the infrastructure solutions and the financing solutions that emerge really are going to vary a lot from one place to the next. I, I do think we tend to think of these questions around conservation and sustainability more generally as being kind of top down and not maybe one size fits all, but there being you know, a relatively limited number of options available. But in fact, when you get into it at the ground level, just as, as I think this story makes clear, and as Josh explained to us too, there's every irrigation district is probably going to approach this a little bit differently. Every local government, every community even, is going to have to think a little bit differently about exactly what sorts of tools they want to deploy in the name of improving conservation. And fortunately, there's more tools than ever. There's more financing methods than ever. A lot of this stuff seems like it's going to lend itself to public-private partnerships, different ways of engaging, whether it's uh, investor-owned utilities, different ways of engaging the agricultural community, different ways potentially of engaging you know, solar panel manufacturers and others who are in the, the, the technology side of the of, of these uh, infrastructure solutions. Lots of really, again, lots of really wonderful opportunities for those who can be creative and flexible and pragmatic in thinking about the financing. But that's really the challenge, right? We, we're we in a kind of a brave new world here and it's gonna require finance folks who are nimble and adaptable and can think outside the box as uh, cliche as that might sound to, to be able to to get a lot of these kinds of projects done because it's going to be a little bit different everywhere you go thanks again to our season two sponsors build america mutual munipro odyssey advisors and the government finance officers association the Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Pod.